Welcome to our newest Hearts Unite the Globe hug patrons. Annie Olchek, we sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for joining our community and making a difference through Patreon. Judy Miller, thank you for being our first Buzzsprout supporter for Bereave But Still Me. Buzzsprout started a new program where you can actually support the podcast of your choice. There are so many ways you can support Hug. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support. Welcome to another CHD Spotlight episode for Heart Month 2023. Today's CHD Spotlight is on the most common type of heart defect, commonly referred to as holes in the heart. With me today is Dr. William Novick, an internationally known cardiothoracic surgeon and the head of the Novick Cardiac Alliance, a nonprofit organization providing life-saving heart surgeries to children around the world. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Novick. Thanks, Anna. It's good to be back. But I always love talking to you, and I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about holes in the heart. When my child's heart defect was diagnosed, we were told he had a Swiss cheese heart. He had an ASD, a huge VSD, a PFO, and a PDA, and I had no idea what all of those abbreviations stood for. So can you tell us about the different kinds of holes in the heart a person could be born with? Sure. Put up the normal heart. Okay. So for those of you who are not watching this on our YouTube channel, we are putting up an image of the normal heart. So this is basically what all of us with normal hearts have. And what you'll see is that there are two filling chambers. The RNA side receives desaturated blood that comes back in your veins. Also known as blue blood, right? What yep. people commonly refer to as blue blood. Okay. The blue blood goes into the right atrium and the tricuspid valve allows it to go into the right ventricle. And then it get pumps out this thing that on the, is labeled MPA. Right. And that's the main pulmonary artery. And from there, it goes to the lungs that goes through the oxygenation process, then comes back to chamber number three, which is labeled LA, which is the left atrium. Now that receives all the oxygenated blood and the mitral valve there you can see opens and lets it into the left ventricle and then it goes out that thing called the AO which is our abbreviation medical abbreviation for the aorta and then the oxygenated blood is distributed throughout your body and if you'll feel your pulse whether it's on your wrist or on your neck that's the blood that's pulsating through this aorta okay so that's what the normal heart looks like now holes there can be holes in any of those areas that we just talked about, there can be a hole between the two ventricles, which is called a ventricular septal defect. You can put up the VSDs. And as you can see from this image, this drawing, where you'd like to call it, these holes can be almost anywhere within the wall that separates the right ventricle from the left ventricle. So... They can be very high up on the ventricular septum. Uh, this one happens to be labeled subpulmonary. If you were able to rotate this image a little bit, you would see one that's also labeled the subaortic, 
Then there's another one called membranous. These are probably the most common types. The membranous can extend down to underneath the tricuspid valve. Then they become what's called inlet or AV canal type. And then down at the bottom, you'll see three little separate holes down there. And those are muscular and apical. The one all the way at the bottom is typically called an apical ventricular septal defect. So any combination or multiple combinations of this can occur in the ventricular septum. Next slide would be the ASD slide, I think. Now, on this slide, sort of an artist's rendition of looking through the right atrium. Remember, that's the one that receives the blue blood from the veins. And there are multiple different areas within the atrial septum, that is the wall that separates the right atrium from the left atrium, where there can be holes. The most common type is the one right in the middle, and it's labeled ASD. I think it's secondary, but it's actually in medical lingo. It's got two names. One, which is the lower of these two, is called the patent foramen ovale. That's normal in the fetus. And two, up a little bit higher, is what we call the secundum ASD. Then you'll see right underneath the superior vena cable, you'll see a hole really up high on the wall. And then one down low. And those are called sinus venosus defects. So those holes occur in the wall, literally right where the inferior vena cava comes in the bottom of the right atrium and where the superior vena cava comes in at the top of the right atrium. Those holes can be a little bit problematic to close, but any of these are closable, obviously. And then the one labeled ASD first degree, if you will, that's the primum defect. And that defect occurs in an area that literally overlies the space above the tricuspid and mitral valve. This is a defect that you will typically see occurring in partial AV canals, transitional AV canals, complete AV canals. What is AV canal? It's the atrioventricular region. So where the atria and the ventricles meet, there can be holes there as well. And that particular defect in the atrioventricular canal defect is a really complex defect that typically you see in Down syndrome children, although other children can have it as well. Now, the last slide, Anna, is going to be the Peyton Ductus slide. Now, this slide looks pretty much like the normal heart, except if you will look up at the top where the pulmonary artery goes underneath the aorta, you'll see this thing labeled PDA, and that's the patent ductus arteriosus. Now, that structure connects the aorta, the main artery, to the body, to the pulmonary artery, the main artery to the lungs, during your life as a fetus, while you're actually in your mother, that's necessary because, as everybody knows, there's no air going in and out of the lungs uh, while you're in the uterus. So there has to be a way for the blood to come out of the pulmonary arteries and get to the rest of the body. And so this is the connection that allows for that. Now, normally, under normal circumstances in most children that are born at term, after your first few breaths of oxygen, this patent ductus arteriosus actually starts to constrict until it completely closes the lumen. So there's no luminal connection anymore. There may be a thread of a connection later in life, 
but no blood flows through this because it completely constricts down to no lumen. So those are all the typical holes that you find. Now there's one other, which is extremely rare, and it's called an aortopulmonary window. And using this ductus slide, if you could imagine where the word, the letters MPA and AO are, there can be a hole literally where those two arteries touch each other and that allows the blood to go from the aorta directly into the pulmonary artery and this is fortunately this is a very rare defect it's not a complicated defect to correct but sometimes it's a complicated defect to diagnose because of its position and it can occur anywhere that the aorta and the pulmonary artery are in very close touching proximity to each other those are the holes that can be part of any congenital heart defect or one last slide, that's the tetralogy slide. Can I ask a question before we go to the tetralogy slide? Sure. The drug prostaglandin E1, is that used to help keep this ductus open? Yeah, but you can't use it too late in life. In other words, this is a drug that really needs to be given during the first 30, sometimes you can get it to work as late as 45, maybe 50 days of life. But pretty much after that, if the ductus is closed and been closed for a significant period of time, PGE-1 won't reopen it. We've gotten kids as late as two months of age to reopen their duct because they had a little trickle, two red blood cells standing next to each other moving through the ductus. And we've been able to start the PGE-1 and, and, and make that bigger. But if it's completely closed and has been for a week, two weeks, three weeks, prostaglandins rarely reopen something like that. Okay. But that's the area that the prostaglandin affects. That's, that's, that's why it's used. Yep. Okay. Just want to double check that. That's what I thought was true. Okay. So here we have another slide. And this is the TOF slide. Yeah, the current cartoon or drawing that you're looking at is one of a defect called a Tetralogy of Fallot. And this is the most common blue baby, if you will allow me that, blue baby defect. Now, so you can see there's a VSD, a ventricular septal defect. And because of the way this heart is rotated, you can see that, hey, that defect is like one you mentioned before that we couldn't see called a subaortic defect. But this is a combo defect. So you have this VSD. Then you'll notice that the artist has drawn the pulmonary valve to be very small and have a very narrow connection to the right ventricle. And this is really what happens in these kids. The valve leaflets can be fused where they're completely closed, which is called pulmonary atresia. Or they can be fused at commissures and the valve opens a little bit. Or the valve can just be small. And then underneath it, you can see these muscular bundles that the artist has drawn in. And these further obstruct the flow of blood out of the right ventricle into the pulmonary artery and then to your lungs. So because of all this obstruction that exists on the right side, the blood is shunted through the VSD to the left side. So now you have blue blood going to the red blood side and being pumped out to the body. And depending upon the degree of obstruction 
in the right ventricle or the pulmonary valve or the pulmonary artery itself, the shunting can be quite significant to the point where, yeah, no, these children are blue or cyanotic, have low oxygen levels in their systemic circulation. So these holes can be singular, multiple, or part of a more complicated cardiovascular defect where they are in combination with other problems. That's the case with my child. My child was born with a single ventricle heart, but also had the ASD, the VSD, the PFO, the PDA, and a whole other laundry list full of things going on. And some of the things actually compensated for one another and were actually helpful until the first palliative surgery was performed. Yeah, depending upon the size of the VSD, that's a determining factor in whether we close the VSD, so you have two pumping chambers, or whether we say, okay, we're not going to be able to close this hole because it's so so big, unless we do what's called a septation operation. I've never Uh, heard of that before. Is that very rare? It is very rare. And these kids have two ventricles, unlike your child. They have two ventricles, but the ventricular septum is almost completely absent. And so you can look inside these hearts and you can see the difference in the internal structure of the ventricles. The left ventricle typically on the inside is very smooth walled and the right ventricle is not. It has what's called trabeculations where there are a lot of crisscrossing of muscle fibers and you can actually see this inside the ventricle what you see. So morphologically, you've got two ventricles, but you don't have a septum. Can you build a septum with Gore-Tex or... Yeah, you can build a tissue or typically you use a cortex patch or a Dacron patch. It's a complex group of kids. They're rare and there are not a lot of people in the country that do this septation operation because it's a difficult post-operative course. You don't have a septum to help push the blood out of either ventricle. The septum is muscular in a normal heart or even in a heart with a small, large VSD. You put a piece of Gore-Tex or Dacron in there, it's just like a cardboard waffle. It's not right. It's There's no muscle. So the kids can struggle for a significantly amount of time operatively. Their long-term exercise prognosis is not like a child that you just close a VSD on. Yeah, they can run and play with their friends, but they get tired quicker and nobody's going to be an athlete on one of their sports teams. And they may have to have a pacemaker for the rest of their life. Oh, wow. And- is in those cases, a lot of surgeons that run across this because it is so unusual will just say, okay, we're going to treat this child in a single ventricle pathway. His post-operative course will be easier and or her longevity will be considerably longer. But fortunately, we don't see very many of these. I've done, I think in my lifetime, I think I've done three septation operations ever. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it seems like the long-term outcome for Fontan patients, yes, there could be liver involvement. Yes, there could be other complications. But if you have two fully functioning ventricles, I would think that you would have a more successful Fontan than somebody like my kid who basically has one absent ventricle. Well, yeah. All right. So let's talk about that just a little bit. The 30-year survival for Fontan procedures, even in this new age of 
extra cardiac or lateral tunnel fund pad. The 30-year survival is dependent upon ventricular morphology. Did you have a right ventricle? Did you have a left ventricle? Or did you have an indeterminate ventricle? Or did you have two ventricles and it was too complicated to repair? And so therefore you got a fontan. So in order of increasing longevity, you go from indeterminate ventricle, and it has the worst, to right ventricle, to left ventricle, to two ventricle systems. And that and, makes sense. That makes sense yeah. because you're looking at a heart that's extremely muscular with the two ventricles, it has a lot of pumping ability. So you're not going to see ventricular right. fatigue like we see when we just have a single ventricle. And with the indeterminate, it would I imagine that makes it hard to tell. So <laughs> Yeah. Yikes. So uh, we I call mean that it could a heart that doesn't know what it's supposed to be. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. Wow. So a VSD can be quite serious and you can end up needing a Fontan heart. But are there VSDs that are much smaller that oh, can yes. be repaired easily? Look, if you look at all VSDs, that, look, let's just take 100 kids born with ventricular septal defects. And it's going to depend on, one, the size of the defect, two, the location of the defect, so if you're dealing with a membranous, we talked about this, inlet or subarterial, whether it's under the aorta or whether it's under the pulmonary artery, and it is a large defect, what do we mean by a large defect? So we base the size of the defect on the corresponding size of the aortic annulus of that particular child. Okay. okay. So. Let's say you're born and your aortic annulus is seven millimeters. If you've got a seven millimeter VSD in the perimembranous position, the likelihood of its closing is less than 10%. Mm. However, if you have a seven millimeter VSD in the muscular position, the likelihood of its closing is probably somewhere in the order of 30 to 40%. Okay. Okay. If you have a medium-sized VSD, so now we're talking about a VSD that's less than 70% of the size of the aortic annulus. Actually, most people say two-thirds, so 66%. Then the likelihood of closure goes up even in the parent position. Subarterial and inlet, eh, less so. Muscular or apical, more so. Now, if you get into small, okay, and small is a defect that's less than 50% of the size of the aortic annulus. Almost all of these close before oh, really? two years. That's really good to know because my granddaughter was diagnosed with a heart murmur. And my daughter-in-law and my son were told that she probably had a little hole in her heart, but that they felt confident that it would close. And six months later, they didn't hear the murmur anymore. Right. Is that most common? To happen? Yeah, yeah, it does. That's not unusual. It's been interesting to watch the evolution of the diagnostic imaging and diagnostic testing that have developed. I've been doing this pediatric heart surgery business since 1987, so I've been around for a while. Been around for a little while. <laughs> and echocardiography has caused a virtual explosion in the number of defects that we're able to find. 
And it really has, I think, expanded our understanding of cardiac defects, of ventricular septal defects, for sure. Because like you said, you hear a murmur when the child is born and you look at the baby's not blue. Right. The baby's breathing at a normal rate. When the baby eats, it doesn't get breathless. You say, wait a minute, what kind of a kind of a defect is this that this murmur is causing? And then you take the baby back for the six-month follow-up, and the doctor says, I don't hear the murmur anymore. And this was most likely a small VSD that closed over time. It was probably in the muscular position. It could have been perimembranous, but, you know, muscular apical VSDs that are small, rarely, unless they're multiple ones, which is called a with cheese septum, unless there are multiple ones, they must always close. That's good to know. And I understand that holes in the heart are the most common. Are ASDs more common or VSDs, or is it pretty much equal? I think in general, VSDs are probably more common than ASDs are. The thing about ASDs is that you can have an ASD, and if you don't have somebody that is facile or experienced in listening to the different types of congenital heart murmurs. It's possible for just a plain Jane Doe pediatrician or John Doe pediatrician not to actually know what they're listening to with an ASD murmur. They can completely miss it. So that's more problematic, isn't it? Not really, because ASDs are far less threatening to your physiology and your life than VSDs are. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that the pressure in the atrial, whether it's left atrium or right atrium, is far lower than the pressures that are generated in the ventricles. That's really interesting to know. Okay. I think I have a much better understanding now of the difference between the atria and the ventricles. Let's talk about how we treat children with holes in their heart, because I haven't been around quite as long as you, but I've been around long enough to hear parents get really excited about babies' holes being treated in the cath lab. So they didn't require open heart surgery. Now, I know it can't be done for all of the different holes in the heart, but can you talk to me about which holes can have treatment? Let's run over the simple holes that can be closed in the cath lab. Okay. Routinely. So start with the atria, the secundum ASDs, and the patent foramen ovalis can routinely be closed in the cath lab. Now, with the secundum ASDs, there's a couple of caveats, and that is there has to be enough rim okay, around the hole, that it will be able to house the device's walls. So in other words, if you had a hole that was so big and you only had, let's say, a millimeter or two of atrial rim, that's not enough for the device to hold on to. Right. Okay. You need three or four millimeters at least. There are still some rare ASDs, secundum ASDs that surgeons have to close. But these days, I would say 95% or higher of all secundum ASDs can be closed in the cath lab. When they can't be closed in the cath lab, is that open heart? Or are they able to do that closed heart? And by that, not being put on the cardio 
pulmonary bypass machine? No, you still have to open the right atrium okay. in order to be able to close these. So you've got to be on the bypass machine and have the heart stopped. The length of time to close, whether it's sinus venosus ASD or exceptionally large secundum ASD, a good pediatric heart surgeon can close one of those with seven minutes of cross clamp time. In other words, oh, wow. the heart, the heart stops seven minutes. Yeah, it's not. I mean, most of us are pretty adept to be able to operate on a little baby's heart. Closing a hole with a piece of cortex or pericardium that's located literally right in front of your face where the boundaries are easily definable. That shouldn't take you much time. If it's gigantic, if it's inferior vena cable sinus stenosis defect, yeah, okay, maybe 12 minutes. And you would still use a Gore-Tex or a Dacron patch for that? You could. A lot of machines, the baby's own pericardial sac that surrounds the heart will take a piece off of that so that you're now dealing with no foreign material. Right. The heart. And is that muscle, will it grow and be able to contract or react well, like a regular septum? No, no it won't. It won't. Okay. It's really just fibrous tissue. But will it yeah. grow with the baby? Unlike oh, yeah. Gore- okay, so unlike Gore-Tex or Dacron, which will not grow with the baby, if you use the baby's own native tissue, that will grow with the baby. And does the heart repair itself where you took that piece of tissue? Yeah, it does. I mean, literally, when you once you sew this in, actually, in an ASD position, doesn't matter whether it's Dacron, Gore-Tex, or pericardium, the heart's going to grow around it and will put down a sort of, uh, I want to call it endothelium, but it's really, it's not like the true normal lining on the inside of the heart, but it's close enough to it that it, it acts like native tissue eventually. Okay. That's good to know. I've heard of cases where people have had holes in their heart for years, maybe even decades before the hole in the heart was discovered and it was causing a problem. So can you tell me how often someone will discover much later in life that they actually have a hole in their heart that needs surgical repair? I would say in the United States, it's now rare. And I do mean rare. People that live in high altitudes, Denver, anywhere in the Rocky Mountains where you're up a mile or higher, the low blood oxygen levels do a number of funny things. One, they keep the ductus open, right? After you're born. And they can also, if you are high enough up, you actually may not hear murmur on these kids because the pressures are equal on both sides. So the pulmonary pressure is now equal to the systemic blood pressure and you won't hear a noise. There won't be a murmur. Or there's no need to do any kind of echocardiogram or anything because you would have to be doing one on everyone. Everybody would have, everybody would. But I would say it's extremely rare. In all my years here in the United States, I've come across two children, both that lived somewhere out in the West, whose cardiologist called me when the kids were four years old, and all of a sudden they discovered they had ventricular septal defect at four years of age in the U.S. Rare, very rare. Okay. Low and middle income countries, all the time. We see it all the time. Quite frankly, the healthcare systems are not as robust as they are in the United States or North America in general. Right. So children don't, number one, not all kids are born in a hospital. That's Problem number one. Problem number two, if it's an uncomplicated delivery, a pediatrician may not even see this child. It may just go out of the hospital without a pediatrician seeing the child or really examining the child. 
So we see a lot of these kids all over the world. And for the ventricular septal defect group, it's problematic because they may not get diagnosed until a year, two years, three years, four years of age. And depending upon the size of the hole, usually if it's still there at that age, it's large. Right. So the children now have what's called pulmonary hypertension and the blood pressure in the lungs can be 50% of the aorta, 70% of the aorta, 100% of the aorta. Which means that they're not a candidate for surgery. That's not entirely true. Okay. Uh, okay. So they may be a candidate for surgery, like a hybrid surgery. Yeah. So back in 1996, in our first fenestrated flap valve VSD closure in Kiev, Ukraine, this child was four years old, had not been diagnosed. Parents started noticing that she was turning a little blue with exercise, and they brought her to the hospital to be examined. And sure enough, she has a big VSD. And she has pressure in her lungs that's equal to the pressure in her body. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And most people would say, if you close that hole, if they survive the operation, the likelihood of them surviving for another five or more years is extremely low. And they will eventually just die from pulmonary hypertension and right heart failure. So we developed this operation where we would make a hole in the middle of the patch, of the VSD patch. And then on the left ventricular side, we would take another patch and we would sew it so that it covers the hole. But we wouldn't sew it circumferentially. We'd only sew it like a third of the way around so that it would pop open. So you have like a pop-off valve. Exactly. Okay. And we started doing this in 96 in Kiev, and we've spread this all over the world since. And it's used in China, Iraq, India, South America, Pakistan, Russia, Ukraine, Belarus. People have picked it up all over the world. Well, we showed in our first 18 kids that we did that the mortality for doing this could be exceedingly low because everybody thought they were going to die in the ICU. And we followed these kids. And we've had a really excellent follow-up on the children that were done in Kiev. And we have done 40 there. Oh, wow. 40. Amazing that there are that many kids that need it. 40. Wow. Our personal numbers are over 300. Just this type of device where you have the pop-off valve? Yeah. Wow. Wow. And I'm not counting all the rest of the guys in the rest of the world that are doing this, just of the kids that we've operated on. Just for the Novik Cardiac Alliance. So of the 300, what's the long-term prognosis for these kids? Okay, now, here's the problem. I only have perfect data out of the 40 that we've done in Kiev. And why? It's because this is not a children's hospital. It's a cardiac center. So they do adults and kids, and that's all they do is heart surgery. That's it. Okay. So these children, as they were operated on, got put in a very special group for long-term follow-up because we didn't know what was going to happen, right? Sure. Sure. Okay. So our longest survivor has now survived for, she was operated on in 1996, and it's 2022 now. You tell me how long. It's 2023 now. (laughs) I just celebrated a new year. 
Yeah, but her operation was in May. So we're not quite So for all intents and purposes, 2022. So we're talking 26 years. Yeah. And the child was older. She was four years old when we operated on her. So she's 30. (laughs) She's 30 years old. She's 30 years old. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So 30 years old and a woman. Did she have a baby? She became a supermodel. Yeah. Oh, I remember you talking about her on another program that you were on. So has she been able to have children? A number of our young women have become mothers. So, yeah, it's an interesting group. It is an interesting group. So you only know about 40 out of the 300. That's too bad. Well, I know about others, but the problem is that I don't have the degree of follow-up that I have on these 40. These 40 were examined in the first year after operation. They got examined every three months. In the second year after operation, they got examined twice. And then every year thereafter, they came into the hospital for a complete analysis. Echo, chest x-ray, blood work, symptomatology. Okay? So, for instance, we've got probably, oh, I don't know, 15 or 17 of these that we operated on in Beijing Children's Hospital. Okay. So as soon as they became 18, boom, uh, they got oh, a jump yeah. out of the system. And you lose them. Nanjing wow. Children's Hospital, another, I don't know, 15 or so, boom, ejected out of the system. Okay. We lose the follow-up on these kids. Right. I can tell you, for straightforward BSD, with severe pulmonary hypertension, that in the first 10 years of life, the survival was 97%. Wow, that's great. Yeah, yeah. That's really, really good. If you look at the group just out of Kiev, at an average of 19.7 years, 94% of them are still alive. Wow. Okay. So with really complex congenital heart defects, like single ventricle, tetralogy of Fallot, TGA, those type of heart defects, we're told that's a lifelong condition. Is it also a lifelong condition if you have a hole in your heart that requires surgery? Okay. So what we're learning over time, remember this VSD closure. So when was the first VSD actually closed? I don't know. So back in 1956 and 57 were when the first VSDs were closed in the United States. And so therefore the first that were closed in the world. Okay. okay. So let's just for, make the math simple. Let's say 1960. Okay. Okay. We've only been doing this for 22 years and a few days this century and 40 years in the last. So actually. There are not a lot of people that are in their 50s and 60s that had heart surgery back in the 60s. Right. Or even early 70s, because the number of pediatric heart surgical programs in the United States in 1966 was probably less than 12 programs in the U.S. in 66. Yeah. So we're learning things as we go along. And I would say the following. Look, even though we've got these people that have lived out to 20 years after closure of an inoperable defect, not all of them 
have low pressure. So we have seen some of these over time go from nice normal pulmonary pressures after the operation and then the first year and the second year it started to go up a little bit. And by the fifth year, they had moderate pulmonary hypertension. Now, moderate, you could still live with fairly easily. Most of our moderate kids are not on any medication, actually. Congenital heart disease is a lifelong process. And there are a few defects where you may never, ever have to see that child again. Right. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I thought this was going to be a really super simple spotlight, but it's way more complicated than I realized it was. Wow. It sounds simple. Hole in the heart. That sounds really simple, but it's actually not very simple when you consider all the different places you can have a hole in your heart and all the different procedures that are available. But how lucky are we to live in 2023 when we do have hybrid opportunities as well as open heart surgery opportunities to fix these holes in the heart? And like you said, there are so many cases that don't even need to be fixed. They're just going to go away on their own, which to me is pretty miraculous. Is there anything else that we need to know about holes in the heart before we close this program? There's a whole lot more, but I think for the purpose of the program, I would say that being knowledgeable of the fact that not every hole in the heart is a terrible diagnosis for your child, because they're not all equal, and some of them might close on their own, is a very important fact for parents. And I just would like to close in saying that those within the sound of your voice have no idea how fortunate they are to live where they live. Because these opportunities don't exist in the vast majority of the world. We are very lucky. Those people who do have internet access and who can listen to this. And for those of you who go out to our YouTube channel and look at the video that we create of this as well, we are very fortunate. We're very blessed that we have this, these surgical procedures and these surgeons who are willing to take our children and repair their hearts. So thank you so much for what you do, and especially for going around the world and training people all over the world so more children can be operated on and can be saved, Dr. Novick. We really appreciate you. Well, thank you. I enjoy doing it, obviously. Thank you so much for sharing this information, Dr. Novick. Thanks, and I'm happy to do this. That does conclude this CHD Spotlight. Tune in tomorrow for our CHD and Society episode. And remember, my friends, you are not alone.